Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. Before we get into our show, we'd like to ask you to leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. It helps us grow. Welcome to On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. I'm Colin Ellis. And I'm Nam Kiwanuka. And on today's episode, we're talking with Jennifer Beishwal about her latest doc, Into the Weeds, which looks at one man's fight against the Monsanto company. This is where I had my first big accident. Right here, I'll show you exactly the crack that my hose got caught in. So when I pulled my truck, you heard it go, pow! At the end of the second spraying season, Mr. Johnson discovered a lesion on his knee. It starts spreading and spreading. And you can see by October 2014, it was covering his whole body. He calls Monsanto. He's just looking for answers. No one called him back. Popular weed killer, Roundup. 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 The active ingredient in Roundup is the world's, the world's most, most popular weed killer, glyphosate. 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 Glyphosate was patented originally as a stripper for industrial boilers. Then he discovered, actually, hey, sink kills weeds. Into the Weeds follows a mass tort started by Dwayne Lee Johnson. He's one of many people who have filed lawsuits against Monsanto over exposure to glyphosate, or as it's known on store shelves, Roundup. It's a herbicide that's used pretty much everywhere from the sides of highways to crops, and it's also carcinogenic. Have you ever heard of it, Nam? Yes, I have. Um, my auntie's a farmer in East Africa, and she told me about how local farmers have been approached to use products from Monsanto. It's really devastating to see the impact of this product, not only on people, but how it affects the local ecology from the water to the insects, and it disrupts habitat. And for what? To control weeds and to make a profit for the company? Yeah, well, the film really delves into the effort that Monsanto put into silencing the science that backs up the carcinogenic effects it has on people, including Lee, who just had a, a bunch of the stuff dumped on him in a just terrible accident. It changed his life forever. What did you think of his story? This really is, a, I think the only way you can describe this, it's a David and Goliath story. It's a story that shows you the bravery of everyday people. Uh, the images of what happened to Lee's body will be seared into your mind. Um, I want to quote the director. She did an interview with the Toronto Star, and she said this, At heart, people are good, what they experience or hear about injustice, especially systemic entrenched injustice, is enraging. But the anger is what propels us, meaning people, into activism. And I think that really captures the essence of this documentary. Yeah, and I also found it kind of fascinating how the legal system is used as a recourse for average everyday people to fight against big corporations like Monsanto. It kind of made it the film into a almost like a legal thriller in a way. Yeah, for sure. I think we all remember Aaron Brockovich. Um, and I, again, it, when people come together and fight the man, the system, I think there is power in that. But it also kind of how many other people might not have been in that position to do that? How many people might be too ill? How many people have died? And how many people might not be, um, you know, even have the audacity in the first place to say, I want to hold these powerful companies to account? Yeah, there's definitely strength in numbers. Well, let's get into it. This is my conversation with Jennifer Bishwell, director of Into the Weeds. Stay with us. Well, Jennifer Bishwell, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast again. Happy to be here. 
Your latest documentary, Into the Weeds, examines a lawsuit against the Monsanto Company, which was started by Dwayne Johnson. Now, just tell us a bit about who he is. Well, Lee is a groundskeeper from Vallejo, California, and he worked um, as the sort of pest manager uh, for the Benicia Unified School District. And one of his jobs was to control weeds. Um, And so he would go and spray uh, Ranger Pro, which is the sort of commercial grade variant of Roundup, glyphosate based, um, on the playing fields, along the sides of the roadways in the schools. Um, And he used to have to do that several times a year uh, using, you know, gallons and gallons of glyphosate. And he had an accident. He had an accident um, and was once soaked to the skin with the chemical. And uh, his symptoms started about uh, a number of months after that first exposure. He was living here when he got that job. And they had two kids and there was a sofa bed here at one time. It lit out from a couch into a bed. Yeah, the boys used to sleep on the couch. You would sleep on the floor where you can lay down. So we just laid down and we got our rest. And every time I got up and went to work to two jobs. And I did whatever I could when I could. You know, we had the two boys and it was tough. It was tight in here. Um, we got through it, though. He'd been unemployed for so long. Yeah. And when he got that job, he was just ecstatic. And he, he got diagnosed with cancer. Non-Hodgkin's lymphoma on the skin, um, which is a very rare form of NHL. Um, and you learn in the trial, as the trial continues, that, that NHL, the tumors that were found in mice, in the mice studies that use glyphosate, were um, uh, particularly associated, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is associated, a cancer that is associated with this type of chemical, according to the lawyers and the trial. This herbicide Roundup, which is sold by Monsanto, it's pretty much used by farmers and consumers everywhere. I guess, what kinds of effects did it have on, it wasn't just Duane, it was other people as well that had uh, was exposed to this chemical, right? Yeah. No. Let's just first talk about the ubiquity of use, because I have to say, when I um, learned everywhere that it is used uh, and the applications, I was absolutely gobsmacked. So it's not just you don't want dandelions in your yard, so you go to the hardware store and buy a little thing of Roundup and spray them. That's one way. So there's residential use for sure. Um, it's it's very much used in farming um, uh, to control weeds. Uh, so that that's that application is is far more sort of systemic, done yearly, whatever over many acres. It's also used in um, industrial applications, like by the sides of highways, railway lines, hydro lines, parks, baseball diamonds, cemeteries, golf courses, schoolyards, all these places that we don't want weeds to either encroach on the railway or encroach on the highway, etc. And then what what shocked me the most is that it is used um, liberally in 
tree plantation. So tree planting, which, you know, we have a lot, you know, our, our kids have not tree planted, but a lot of our friends' kids have, and my husband tree planted at one point. Um, there, there's aerial spraying over these plantations to get rid of broadleaf species because the broadleaf species, you know, block the light from the little saplings, the pine and spruce saplings, and that's a way of getting rid of them. So they all die, and the only thing that's left is the pine and the spruce. But of course, you know, a healthy ecosystem is not a plantation, it's not a garden, and all the things that get affected by that kind of um, systemic use of the herbicide we are learning about now. So it, it, it's not just people, it's insects, it's animals, it's plants, it's soil, um, etc. So that, that I just wanted to say that because it's it's kind of shocking how, how, how much it is used. And um, there's also, if you'll just bear with me, um, because glyphosate has been classified as non-carcinogenic, um, likely not to be carcinogenic to humans. It's also sometimes used as a desiccant on food before harvest, which means that, you know, it, when you're trying to harvest and you're not, your, your crop is not uniformly dry, it's a problem. You can have mold, you can have, you, you have to dry it out. And, and if the weather doesn't cooperate, um, glyphosate is also used as a desiccant because it, 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 it dries everything out evenly. But, the argument there is that once it is sprayed directly on food that people eat, then it gets into the food. And there are glyphosate residues in many, many of the foods that you and I and everybody we know eat every day. So that's another um, kind of exposure. It's one of those sort of forever chemical things like Teflon. We all have glyphosate in us and, and uh, some more than others, uh, as the farmers say you know, they're exposed the most. So the people in our film, that's a long answer <laughs> to say that the people in our <laughs> film are, um, Lee Johnson is somebody who used it for his job. A lot of other people used it residentially. Um, he was the bellwether case that determined the mass torts that came afterwards and the thousands of other plaintiffs that came forward who had experienced injury because of their use of Roundup. And part of it is really just about labeling right like if if you are you know you don't you don't have to wear chemical resistant gloves or put a mask on when you're using it in your garden or wash your hands or not eat while you're using it i mean none of those things are are on the label in a way that makes people understand that this is a dangerous chemical and i think that the the majority of the fight and the people who are fighting it and certainly when lee was fighting it uh was to have the label changed to reflect um, the the potential dangers. Given though that it's it's it can be found in so many different things, food especially. I mean, most of us, I guess, don't get sick as a result, but certain people do. I mean, I guess I wonder, like, is it is it depend on the dosage that I guess is that we're exposed to? Like, because he was, you know, he got it all over himself, right? Yeah, he had an accident and he was soaked to the skin. And I I just remember when he told the story about. You know, it, it was on a hill, and he looked down, and there was a bay. You know, um, it, it's he's in the Bay Area of San Francisco. He's looking at the ocean, and all he could think about was, "Oh no, I can't let that get into the water. Uh, there's a drain," and it was like, "Oh my God, you, that you could have done that because you know everybody says the solution to pollution is dilution, and instead he." 
turned off the motor but got it all over himself. And yes, that was a massive exposure, but still not something that is um, articulated as being carcinogenic or um, that large an exposure as being problematic for any individual. So yes, I imagine it is um, about exposure, like, le you know, length and, and, and amount of exposure. Hmm. Um, I want to ask you about that scene because he's describing, you know, getting all this this uh, stuff on him, all this liquid on him. And, you know, his first thought is about the about what effect it might have on the people who, I guess, are accessing the water that it might spill into. You know, he's, he seems to really care about others before himself. And I wonder if, if he, that's just his personality. What, what makes him, I guess, tick, I guess? Well, you know, it's. It's not often that you meet a kind of everyman hero. And I feel like Lee is a very charismatic individual precisely because of the fact that he's not a um, an outgoing person. He's not somebody who wants to, you know, be on the world stage. As he says, I'm a cat from a small town. You know, we like to lay low. We keep our, we really... But he is a rapper. Well... He's a rapper, and he loves doing that, but he's not a rapper yeah. in front of, you know, thousands and thousands of people. So he he's somebody who, um, you know, wanted to take care of his family, had a hard time finding a job, got this job. It was a good job. It was a job that, you know, gave a pension, that gave benefits. You know, you could see how something like that could be a lifelong career, right? Um and then this happened to him. And I think his main reason for going public and for taking on, I mean, talk about David and Goliath. This is kind of the, the, the perfect example of that was for other people to think about other people. So other people knew and people could make a decision. And every single person we talked to who has been affected, um, that was what they wanted. They didn't care about money. You know, they said, God, would I rather have my health back? Yes, I would way rather have my health uh, than, than, than a settlement. But really, it's just to let people know, warn people so that they can make their own choice about whether to use products like this. They know that I'm sick from this stuff, but I don't have any power. This is about food, this is about seed, this is about health, this is about the soil, this is about environment. This is not an Lee Johnson story. This is bigger than me. I want to ask you a bit about the, the, the lawyers involved in this, because like you said, this is a real David and Goliath struggle, and not one lawyer could just take on a giant company, a corporation like Monsanto. What was it, what was it that these lawyers were basically up against? Well, you think about, I mean, first of all, when you, there are limitations to mass torts as a tool of justice. And, and that was also one of the things that we really wanted to explore in the film. There are these bigger issues like why are agencies captured? Why are the agencies that are meant to regulate corporations, as they say, captured by those corporations to the extent that um, it almost feels like there's a revolving door and people are going back and forth between government agencies and then the corporations that they're meant to regulate. And there's something very cozy about that relationship. 
And you, you, you learn about that. And then you learn about the fact that with mass torts, really the only repercussion, the only sort of course of action against giant uh, multinational corporations is mass torts in the United States. So that, that you, you sue them, their money damages. People don't go to jail for hurting people, just like, you know, if I went and punch my neighbor, I, I would, if I hurt my neighbor, I would be liable criminally for that. That's not the case with corporations in terms of mass torts. So it's about money damages. And these lawyers, there's often a kind of, you know, caricature of them as ambulance chasers. They're looking for, you know, way, people who are injured so that they can, you know, make a buck off of somebody's back. And it's absolutely, as well, in this case, the opposite in the sense that these are people who put up millions and millions of dollars on spec, right? Because they don't know if they're going to win. Um, they amass an unbelievable sort of level of expertise in the case. And it's something that, you know, this film has been a f almost a four-year project. So we had to learn about all of that too. Like we had to learn all of those things in order to be able to convey it and, and convey it in a, in a way that was comprehensible to, to viewers. But they have to do all of that. They get all of these experts together. And as, as Mike Miller, rest in peace, one of our lawyers says, um, it's the working person's key to the courthouse because nobody would ever, ever, ever be able to amass the resources to take on these giant corporations. And so the lawyers come together, they form um, an MDL, multi-district litigation executive group, and they are the ones that run those cases. And, and so it was a big risk for all of them. You know, they all went into a lot of debt. And now that, that these, you know, the, these changes are happening, we can see the, um, we can see the repercussions slowly um, becoming clearer and clearer. Uh, Roundup is going to be taken off the residential market um, by Bayer. Eventually, it's going to be phased out. It will still be available for agriculture and industrial applications, but it will be taken off the residential market. Um, there are a lot of countries that have banned the use of it. So these, these are the things that trickle down after cases like these are won. And, that's, and, and those changes are a result of this lawsuit? Yeah. That's amazing. Um, I, I actually was kind of surprised that Monsanto didn't just settle. I mean, these guys have deep pockets. Why didn't they just pay off Lee and say, sorry, and move on? Well, you know what? I mean, I, I bet a lot of people are asking themselves that same question because um, I think that it was, I don't know. I mean, I can't speculate on, 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 on why, they, why they didn't do that, but they, they fought and they lost, and then they lost two other lawsuits that happened right after Lee, um, the, the Pileads, Alva and Alberta Pileade, who originally were awarded a billion dollars each. Edwin Hardiman, that was a federal case, he was awarded $80 million. All of those um, awards were slashed and appealed and slashed and appealed and slashed and appealed. And so, uh, and, and, and some of them are, are, are not perfectly, there, there are still cases where people have said, no, I don't want a settlement, I want my day in court. And so those things are going ahead. Um, so they are, they've settled now, Bayer has settled now, but there, I'm assuming that there will be more uh, of this. And I don't know whether it's hubris or 
a belief that this is truly a safe revolutionary product um, or given the alternatives better than the alternatives. Maybe that's part of their reasoning. But um, the fact is the, the systemic effects and repercussions of using that much herbicide in the world everywhere um, is scary. Well, it's not only that they f- they fought it. I mean, you know, they they use all sorts of tactics to, you know, avoid any sort of accountability. Can you just talk about some of the things that uh, Monsanto did to, I guess, get around uh, having to, I guess, label uh, or do anything uh, to protect people from being exposed to Roundup? Well, there's something called, I didn't even know what this meant at the beginning of this whole process called FTO. And it was all about, like, when you look at their... Um, internal memos and documents. It's that we, we have to protect our FTO, which is freedom to operate, basically, is what that means. And the Monsanto papers are one of the stories that the film tells, because in in discovery, um, during the process of discovery, when everybody, you know, gets the documents, they try to, they're making the argument, they, the, the two sides have to share, right? And in the past, that was, you know, an airplane hangar with tables of junior lawyers on either side with a bunch of bankers boxes frantically going through everything by hand. But initially, this case, there were 10 million documents. Now there's many more. Um, And the idea that any set of humans could go through all of those documents was like impossible, right? So what I learned also doing this is that the role of artificial intelligence or computers in terms of searching um, uh, searching out documents, finding, you know, compromising language or suspicious language in documents. This, this is how some the, how those Monsanto papers were discovered, essentially, is so I would argue, I mean, from the evidence of the Monsanto papers, and it's not my opinion, and I have to be very careful about the way that I talk about this. This is the, These are some of the things that were brought to light when those papers were publicized. There was um, ghostwriting by internal Monsanto employees and scientists of papers by independent scientists and actual notes about, we'll just ghostwrite these sections and then get them to sign their names. There are documents like that. There are documents that say, we cannot say that Roundup is not um, carcinogenic. We have never done the studies to determine that. So that, that that's also a shock of for, for a product that has been on the market for as long as Roundup has. Um, there was... IARC is this incredible independent science organization that is part of the World Health Organization. It's the International Association for Research on Cancer. And basically, they bring together independent scientists who have no skin in the game, and that's really important. They have to be without a con- you know, a vested interest. And they all just study different, you know, products or compounds, you know, uh, whatever, charred red meat, alcohol, um, you know, uh, Teflon, things like that. And then they all come together and debate and decide whether or not these things uh, should, how they should be classified. And when IARC was reviewing glyphosate, um, the company Monsanto had already mounted a, a 
a blowback, a defense, even before the their determination came out that they were going to discredit IARC, that they were going to pay third party um, uh, groups, you know, quasi scientific groups to to take them down, to to malign independent scientists who had done this work. Um, and, you know, the one year that, that they had for that kind of public affairs, their budget was like just under $17 million. Like, I mean, the, that's mind boggling. So, so those kind of things, which I suppose, I really hope that's not business as usual in the, um, you know, transnational corporation world, but it may well be. And those papers show that and I think that the papers and the revelation of that malfeasance and corruption and manipulation um, was a big part of the reason that that Lee's trial was successful. The the papers, the fact that they exist, the fact that there's email, there's documentation, you know, showing <laughs> these practices. Uh, I think Hubris is right. I think you know you used that word earlier. I feel like. To, you know, for them to, to, to just leave such a large paper trail like that and to not think that, I guess, they're going to do anything wrong. And then when they're called out on it in court, there's some great footage in the film where you see some of their, I guess, uh, some employees of Monsanto being confronted with this evidence. I, I mean, it's, it's mind blowing. I know. And, you know, the thing like the thing that is just devastating is that when that IARC ruling or when that IARC panel was meeting and they were, you know, determining what to do with glyphosate, that was at exactly the same time that Lee was writing to the company and calling them to say, I have this rash on my skin and I wonder if it has to do with the fact that I had this accident and I was soaked to the skin, but it's supposed to be safe. And, and, and the fact that nobody ever got back to him from the company when he was using it for his job is is mind-boggling. It was all right at that time when they were trying to fight against what they thought was going to be a, a, a bad ruling for them for IARC. So I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not a cynic, um, but, well, maybe that's the kind of thing that, that can lead you to become a cynic. <laughs> I, I, I think one of the lawyers actually mentions that cases like this may not deter companies like Monsanto from selling dangerous products. Uh, maybe they'll be more careful to not put this information in email going forward. But I'm wondering if there are tools other than maybe, I mean, we talked about, you know, uh, tort law in the United States, but are there other tools to hold companies like this accountable? Well, I mean, you would assume that, that organizations like the Environmental Protection Agency, or in the case of pharmaceuticals, the, the Food and Drug Administration, that that's their job is to do that. But actually, what you find, and it's interesting, Robin Greenwald, who is a wonderful environmental lawyer, um, who, who might call herself a cynic when it comes to um, corporate, you know, responsibility. She says that, you know, they, those, they talk to each other every day. Like they, those corporations have access to the EPA and we don't, like we don't have, they don't have a pathway to ordinary citizens. And you think, wow, if that's the level to which a government regulatory agency can be corrupted by the very corporations they are meant to be regulating 
that's a problem. You know, so yes, if, 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 those, uh, if those agencies had more teeth, that would be one way. And of course, the other way is the, is the terrible publicity that trials like this bring to companies like that. And then there's things like this film that hopefully act as a historical record for ordinary people to see that this that 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 the problems that exist and also that it, it is possible to um, be successful in fighting uh, at a great cost, but still, you know, to 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 score a point for the good guys. We have to wrap up our conversation, but I just want to know how is Lee doing today? So we are very excited that Lee is coming for the opening of, of Hot Docs. And I have to tell you, there's been times over the past four years where I've dreaded getting a phone call. Um, uh, and we really didn't know if he was going to be around. Uh, and he's, he's better these days. He's not cured. He's not perfect, but he's, he, and he's, but he's doing well enough that he can manage the trip. And we are really, really excited that he and some of our lawyers and some of our other subjects are coming to uh, share this moment with us. That's great to hear. Well, I, I hope, I wish him all the best and I wish you all the best with this film. It's really eye-opening and, and congratulations on making it four years. It's a long time to commit to a project like this. So well done. Thank you so much. Um, take care. See you again. Thank See you, you in four years or yes, definitely. maybe not. Okay. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Thanks, Jennifer. Take care. And that's the podcast. Into the Weeds will be streaming at Hot Docs from April 29th to May 4th. It's also playing in theaters during the festival. While you're here, why not give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend about us? It helps new listeners to find the show. You can follow me on Twitter at ColinEllis81. And you can follow me at Namshine, all one word. Thanks to producer and editor Matthew O'Mara, senior producer Katie O'Connor, production support coordinators Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell, and executive producer Laurie Few. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you at the next screening. <laughs>